Thanks for pressing play. By the end of this real dialogue, you'll gain a new lens on the power of questions. As you know, we are living in a world where access to all of the knowledge of humanity is getting easier and easier, faster and faster, and cheaper and cheaper, which makes questions about those answers very powerful. Peter Drucker famously said, the most serious mistakes are not being made as a result of wrong answers. The true dangerous thing is asking the wrong question. Indira Gandhi famously said, the power to question is the basis of all human progress. Our guest today is my longtime friend, one of the smartest and funnest people I know, the legendary John Berghoff. He, he's the founder of Exchange, and Exchange is a company that delivers legendary group learning experiences designed to blow open exponential thinking and exponential results, thus the name Exchange for Exponential Change. The first time I met John, he was, um, he was leading an event. And um, if you've seen John and the exchange team leading a bit, you know how powerful it is when a group of committed people are led through a structured, science-based approach to real dialogue, real questioning, and real thinking. John's a living legend for a reason, and he's a ton of fun. And I promise your brain will thank you for listening to this podcast. Speaking about this podcast, this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Hard to believe, but we've been downloaded millions of times and in 190 countries. I didn't know there were 190 countries. Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcast. And there are reviewers out there who call us asinine, overrated, and sophomoric. Whatever you call us, we are the Authentic Dialogue Podcast, or Oddcast, for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, readers like you have made our latest Category Pirates book, Snow Leopard, how Legendary Writers Create a Category of One, a number one Amazon bestseller. It's the first writing book ever uh, written through a category design lens. And in Snow Leopard, what you'll find are not a bunch of nose-picky suggestions for how you can make your writing better. Instead, what you will internalize is a completely new way of framing your ideas, stories, and insights to reach and resonate with the most people possible. Snow Leopard is the first book we know of to do a deep category science dive into the data around nonfiction books, why they sell and why they don't sell. So if you want to uh, craft and deliver um, points of view and new ideas that tip at scale, Snow Leopard on Amazon.com. Now, as Joy Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. If you're not the greatest conversation, meeting, event uh, facilitator that I've experienced, uh, I don't know who the fuck is. I mean, you are as w you are absolutely the bar. Uh, and I'll never forget the first time I saw you in action in front of a group of high-powered executives and beautiful Whistler uh, BC. And, um, you know, you're part carnival barker. <laughs> Your your part your you you show tremendous empathy. You're fun. You're funny. You're silly. You're insanely professional. You're very thorough. I mean, 
you are incredible on stage. And when you mm. are, you know, you're, you really are like watching a master conductor conduct an event or just like you would a master conductor lead an orchestra. And so tell me about how you've been able to take that, what I would call mastery of engineering, of designing and a radical, exponential, fun learning experience in person, which was your business. Mm -hmm. And you literally had to figure out how to do that overnight digitally. And before you answer, I just want to say one other thing. Most people I saw try to do this. What they did was they recreated an, an in-person event digitally and it sort of sucked. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you, you didn't do that. You seem to me anyway, as someone who watched you, embrace this new reality and technology and you actually do events pretty differently in, in the native digital world than the native analog world. So I'd love it if you could walk me through your learnings and how you are now arguably the greatest company in terms of not just in-person, but now digital learning experiences that really are impactful. This is not like sitting there watching a boring fucking webinar. This is like people getting deep. Well, it is our world. And uh, you're asking a question that... Um, I think a lot of people ought to be really interested in because there's so much that we can do with how we come together, how we learn, how we create, you know, whether it's an industry conference, like where I met you or a team trying to solve a problem. And if we can figure out how to do magical, incredible things when we gather in person or online, um, you know, the benefits are obvious. Uh, what's not obvious, as you're pointing out, is actually how to do it. It just hasn't become the norm. I would love to share with you an answer to your question that I don't think I don't think I've shared with you, Christopher, which goes back to probably the most difficult time in my life, which was when I was in high school. And when I was in high school, it's actually about a four year span between eighth grade and kind of somewhere in my senior year. I had a combination effect of three things that were really not going well. Uh, one, I struggled in school. I think you and I have some commonalities in this area. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I grew up in a family where certainly my parents, but even my extended family, all my cousins, many who were a few years older as they'd graduate. I, I used to get a, a handwritten card from my grandmother when she was alive every year. And she would write out the universities that my cousins had been accepted to. <laughs> in case there's any question as to uh, what, what she really valued, right? And, and my grandmother, um, by the way, an extraordinary woman, taught me so much just by watching how she raised her five kids and how she lived. And this was part of it. And um, I barely made it out of high school. I was denied acceptance to every single college I applied to. Um, but that wasn't the hardest part of that time of my life. The hardest part was I really did not feel like I belonged. In fact, for about two years consecutively, this is kind of wild to say, when I was in high school, during lunch and any breaks, I literally hid in the library 
I felt like such an outsider. I felt unsafe. Um, I felt completely disconnected from the world. And so uh, I tell you this because 20 whatever plus years later, our work is really, I've, it's taken me forever to, to discover this. It's become a way of trying to heal this like wound in my soul of not feeling like I belong, not having relationships to turn to, and feeling like I can't learn and all of that happening at once. And the fascinating thing is you ask like, what are we doing? How are we doing it? The center of what we've stumbled into is realizing that in all these conferences, trainings, workshops, meetings that happen in industries and companies where we say we're here to share ideas, solve a problem, what we've stumbled into is the recognition that as important as that is, we also have to know how to design and facilitate experiences so that people feel like they belong. And there's even a neuroscience to it. Like the faster I feel safe, like I belong, the faster I can actually get smarter and I can learn or solve a problem or create a solution so that, you know, tomorrow's different from today. But that's the, that's the unexpected answer for most people is that the center of creating great experiences is really understanding how human connection, the experience of belonging, all contributes to our ability to think, learn, solve, do all these things when we meet. Thank you for that, John. And to be very clear with you, I think the reason you're successful and exchange is successful and the reason the company has done what it's done uh, during and post-COVID is exactly that. And in a lot of ways, COVID plus native digital work for many, particularly native analogs and for some native digitals as well, can create a lot more of those kinds of feelings you describe having as a, as a young person. Yeah. And so you're a master of experience. You're a master of listening. And you're also a master of asking questions and conversation. And so I would love it if you'd kind of pop the hood on those themes for me and tell me how you think about them and then maybe how you mm. weave them together to create mm. a, a learning experience, a, a uh, you know, here's what's going on in my mind. You get the email and the email says, you're invited to the offsite next month. You're like, <laughs> You know, I'd rather take a hockey puck to the balls than to go to a fucking offsite, <laughs> right? Oh, or, or we're going to a, we're going to do a QBR, and that means that the executives are going to give you a proctology exam. And so, a lot of these things are are not things that people look forward to. And the reality is, they're not very productive. Mm. Anyway, walk me through sort of your thinking about how to create an experience where where people do feel safe. What does that exactly mean? And, and how you architect the experience, the conversation, the questions, and what, what results get um, produced as, as a result. Yeah. Well, so let's take this, uh, this quarterly offsite as an example, right? So, I mean, that's a real example. Um, and it's synonymous with all the meetings and all the gatherings that people sit in and attend for all the right reasons. And yet, even before we get there, <laughs> we're concerned about just the like dramatic waste in human potential that's guaranteed, right? So uh, 
why is that? And, and how do we think about it? And what do questions have to do with it? Well, here's a good starting point. So right now, all of these meetings and everyone who's attending them, here's one thing that pretty much everybody agrees on. We are living at a time where our world is changing faster than we are equipped to adapt to that change, right? I've presented some version of that hypothesis to over 10,000 folks that we've trained in the last two and a half years since the pandemic got here. There's almost universal acceptance. World's changing faster than we feel equipped to adapt to that change. You want to comment on that? Yeah, I just I just wanted you to say it again, but then you did. Uh, we're living at a time where the world is changing faster than we can adapt to it. Yeah. So let's let's now ask, well, what does that have to do with all these meetings? Well, so let's start with the embarrassingly obvious, but uh, we, do, we still don't design our meetings to honor this. And that is, if we're really dealing with challenges that are as complex as maybe they really are, then maybe this idea that when we come together for any meeting, whether it's like where I met you, a large kind of leadership industry association type conference or an organizational annual meeting, it doesn't even matter. The idea that a few of us in the room are going to have the answers for everybody else is no longer a valid idea, right? And so you might say, well, yeah, but see, I'm, I'm the C-level executive, John, and I'm going to come <laughs> and I'm going to present the vision. I'm going to do a fireside chat with q and I'm going to give you all the answers because I just came down from the mountain with the 15, whoops, the 10 commandments. <laughs> Well, one I of the greatest feeling, scenes in movie history. <laughs> I, I have a feeling at the end of the meeting, you'll feel great about the meeting. <laughs> and so I hate to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm going to, because isn't it true that in some ways, some of these meetings are like weird sort of dictatorial ego fests? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the way that so many convenings are designed, but we're totally unconscious to how we're designing it is really what we would call an egocentric design. It's, it's either A, a few of us have the answers for everybody, or B, we pretend we're here to creatively explore problems or the future, but we're all really here just to convince each other of our thinking. And, you know, there's a place for that. But the point here is you asked, what's the role of questions? and what we have found is that when a group of people come together, especially in the name of we got to learn, we got to solve some shit, we got to fix something, we've got to reinvent, whatever the topic is, right? One of the other things that very few people disagree upon is we probably need to figure out how to actually tap into like the, the collective intelligence in this room, right? So it's, it's this paradigm shift beyond a few of us have the answers for everybody to, well, in addition to that, how do we get the best thinking from everybody, right? Right. It's a shift both in who we are engaging and how we engage. So when we get the privilege to design CEO summits or design sprints or strategy sessions, again, it's, or really we teach others how to facilitate these, you know, the starting point is, how are we going to tap into the collective knowledge base, collective set of strengths, collective wisdom, intelligence, potential? You can interchange whatever word you want. The, the operating word is the collective, right? And the answer is in the questions, right? The more complex our worlds get, the less value there is in 
do I have the answers and more value? And can I ask the right question? Uh, there's a guy named John Kelly. I think he's been the head of research for IBM for a long time. And, you know, he said this years ago, he said in the future, we're not going to measure intelligence by what we know. We're going to measure it by, can we ask the right questions? Right. And, and look at this chat GPT world well, right I, now. And, I was just going to say, I mean, obviously yeah. you've heard the term um, prompt engineer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's as the value of existing knowledge decreases exponentially because technology can access it in a way that the human brain can't. The value of questions increases exponentially. Yeah. AKA yeah. prompt engineer. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, what, so let's, if we try and strip away all the bullshit jargon and we say, okay, what is an, my, my Apple watch thinks I had just asked it a question and now it's talking to me. Um, <laughs> Turn fuck your off. fucking A off. <laughs> it, it, it just said, I don't have an answer to that. That's so funny. My comment <laughs> about the bullshit jargon. That's hilarious. So if, if we stop and say, well, what is an organization? And if we actually see it for what it really is, okay, it's not a chart, it's not a mission, it's not a plan. An organization, I'm going to use a phrase, Christopher, that comes from a teacher of mine who is one of the great question designers in history, Dr. Ron Fry. And Ron shared this perspective with me years ago. He said, John, an organization is nothing more than a constellation of conversations. That's all it is. Right, right now, if you look, how can you actually look at what's happening in an organization? It's just conversations happening, right? And and then let's take this a step further. What's a conversation? It's a prompt followed by a response. And you know what's fascinating is while we can design the prompt, from that point forward, it is emergent. We cannot control, right? The whole idea of control is, you know, it's clearly an illusion. Right. In the last few years have hopefully given us all a good lesson in that. But when you talk about tapping into the the intelligence that shows up to this quarterly offsite, you know, from a systems thinking standpoint, the first question and the questions that we ask are the prompts that from that point forward are going to bring forward all of our wisdom. So here in in our world at Exchange, Christopher, we give so much reverence and respect to the questions that we design that are going to then invite the important conversations. It's like a lens, like you got glasses right now, I got contacts on. Questions, we, we, here's, how, here's how much weight we give to the importance of questions that we ask, whether we're conscious or unconscious of it. So these lenses in front of our eyes, when I put a lens in front of my eye, even before I open my eyes, the lens changes the world we see, right? questions are like a lens where even before we start answering the question, the questions change the future even before the answers arrive. That's how important they are. They change our future before the answers arrive. So we have to become, we have to become committed. We have to become students. We have to have an interest in mastery over the questions that we design. And this is not our idea. It's not a new idea. Uh, 40 years ago, uh, Peter Senge out of MIT was saying, we need to figure out how to become an organiz- a learning organization. I'll well, tell you, John, his book, The Fifth Discipline, yeah. about this, about the learning organization, is one of the most important business books ever read. And I know it's sold millions of copies, but I don't think it's well known today. It, it, he was still four decades ahead of his time. Yeah, really. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite that book. 
I'm going to cite that book. So one of the things, and I've had the privilege of working with Peter. He's such an incredible teacher. And one of the things that I learned from Peter is that if we want to be a, and let's define learning organization, because that that sounds like a really nice platitude. So, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'm not going to give justice to his original definition, but it's pretty close. How do we become an organization or any group of people for that matter, who a civilization for that matter, a nation, a culture, right? Think of it that way. How do we become a group of people who can adapt to or navigate in a continually changing world, right? Is that an idea whose time has come? It sure is, right? But if you look under the hood at Peter's teachings, one of the central principles is we have to be as interested in being influenced by each other as we are trying to influence each other, right? He calls it, he calls it advocacy versus inquiry. Advocacy meaning trying to, I'm trying to convince you of my position. Inquiry meaning I'm genuinely curious. And here's the thing, that book came out, whatever it was, the early 90s. In the early 2000s, there was a landmark study that came out of the University of Michigan, Marshall Lasada and Emily Heafy. And this study has since been looked at, uh, explored a million ways to the moon and back. And it's the idea that you can actually predict a leading indicator of any group of people that can navigate challenges and change and complexity and whatever other buzzword we want to put in there. They have a a balance of, hey, they are more curious than they are just trying to convince each other. When they show up, they are genuinely open to their perspectives evolving. So you asked about questions, and all I'm trying to do is just present a case that it's not our idea, it's not a new idea. We have to be asking, how do we scale up curiosity every time we meet? Because if we can scale up curiosity, guess what else gets scaled up? Potentially, listening. Potentially, as Gary Hamill, who's probably the most widely cited contributor to the history of Harvard Business Review, he says, we need innovation to come from everywhere. Well, how the hell do you do that if we don't have curiosity everywhere, right? Ideas, solutions, creativity. But I'll I'll use a word, Christopher, that I don't use all the time. If we can actually genuinely be curious about each other at a larger and larger scale, healing happens. And healing is really important for us to be curious about, especially at a time that is traumatic for so many people. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's chapter one on curiosity awesome. or questions. <laughs> well, and it's, it's, you know, I love you for lots of reasons, but it's, it, it's one of these core things that we connect on. Mm. When somebody says something provocative, something that causes an emotional what so we brought brought up senge one of his contemporaries is roger martin and of course roger's considered to be the quote-unquote leading management thinker today quote-unquote the Mm -hmm. new peter drucker and and, yeah and he's written his most recent book i think is called the new way to think and he's he's unbelievable We, we talk about these things and and so here's my question the sort of grumpy person in me would go, how do you have a conversation with several hundred people? <laughs> right. Or, yeah. I mean, sometimes your events are in thousands, are they not? It's true. Yeah. Yep. And so normally the thinking goes, and I'm somebody who has parroted this thinking, which is, you know, a committee 
is where legendary goes to die. Mm -hmm. And what we end up with is not the greatest thinking of the group. What we end up with is the dumbest thinking of the group because what we're getting to is, what's the thing we cannot agree on? Mm -hmm. Right? And we argue about dumb shit. And I can always tell when I see marketing, often I'll say this to, you know, if I'm with one of my friends or with my wife, I'll go, that was a committee. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, on one hand, harness the wisdom of the crowd, innovation comes from everywhere, learning organizations, I'm all about it. And at the same time, it doesn't turn into an idiotic, you know, the lowest IQ thing we could agree to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a fair concern. It's one we have too, when we go work with a group. And it, you know, it depends partially on what's what's the goal of what we're designing and facilitating. Because sometimes the goal is simply how do we, sometimes the first goal is how do we just invite the whole room to actually think? And, and when we invite them to think, and then we invite them to start to learn from each other, there's things that come alive that now help everything else we want to do. Let me give you an, an example. Uh, Last year, I had the privilege of being invited in to be the uh, designer and the facilitator for a group of CEOs that meet in Austin uh, of an organization by the name of Conscious Capitalism, the Conscious Capitalism Annual CEO Summit. And, you know, there's this is a room full of leaders uh, of companies that you and I have all heard of. Right. The. The opening experience that I led at this three-day CEO summit, I begin by presenting a question. And so part of your, your curiosity around how do we make sure this is actually a good idea, it does start with understanding that certain types of questions are really important. So earlier we talked about curiosity, great, but not all curiosity is equal. In fact, you also quoted Drucker, I think. One of the most important lessons I learned from Peter Drucker was something he said to one of my mentors before Drucker passed away. And one of my teachers, David Cooperwriter, had asked Peter Drucker uh, at the end of spending a day together, he said, Peter, you've written more about management and leadership than anybody. In your opinion, what's the essence of leadership in a nutshell? And with no hesitation, Peter Drucker said, well, I think it's timeless for me It's always been that the role of a leader is to align the strengths of any system so much so that the weaknesses become irrelevant, right? It's to align the strengths so much that the weaknesses become irrelevant. And Chris, I know you know this, and if anyone were to hear this conversation, there's a good chance that they've taken- Nobody listens to this shit. (laughs) Nobody listens to this. My my mom- there's a good chance they've taken an assessment to figure out their strengths. And so have like 30 million other people in the last two decades. Why? Because like 300... Many, hasn't everybody taken a Myers-Briggs at this point? Yeah, yeah. Why have tens of millions of people taken an assessment to figure out their strengths? Why, why is there not a whole category of assessments on weaknesses that is growing the way the strength assessments are? It's simple. Because all the research is validated. We're going to get a lot further, a lot faster by leaning into our strengths. What does that have to do with question design? Well, what has to do with question design is we want to ask questions that in different ways help us to unlock the strength, the intelligence in the room, okay? So go back to the CEO summit. 
one of the first questions that we ask in any group and that we presented to this room before we had a keynote speaker, before anybody taught anything, before any content came from the stage, I got up on the stage and I effectively handed this question to the room. I said, why is it important that you are here right now? And I did it in a way with a tone and a tempo where they realized, oh shit, I'm going to grab a pen and I'm actually going to think about it, right? We don't do enough thinking. And then I said, now you're going to get in a small group and you're going to hear each other's answers. And maybe, maybe you'll notice something about each other's answers. Maybe you won't. At a minimum, you're engaged, right? Which, by the way, that in and of itself is half the problem in how we meet is that people aren't engaged. And if we're not engaged, we're distracted, if not demoralized. How many meetings have you and I sat in where we're thinking, holy fuck, if I could be anywhere other than this, right? Because as a starting point, we're just not even engaged. So we shouldn't overlook the significance of just engaging. But go back to this little story I'm telling you, Christopher. So you've got, and I'm looking out in the audience, you got John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods in a conversation with Victor Cho, the CEO of Evite, right? These are the kinds of folks talking about why is it important that we're in this room as business leaders. And as they're having this conversation, there's actually a whole combination effect of benefits in the room. And we can talk about those, but they come out of the conversation. And then what do I, as the facilitator do? I say, I'm going to hand the mic out. This is your show. I'm interested in turning the crowd into the stage especially a room full of CEOs, right? I don't want to be a sage on the stage. I want to be the guide on the side. I'm interested you in- the greatest sound bites. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and you just slide them in. I'm, I'm interested in the wisdom in the room, right? Which is not a bullshit idea, right? There's research that says it's there. Unfortunately, we rarely tap it. And if you're looking for the, whoever wants the cliff notes, how do you tap into that collective intelligence without it being the dumb group think? The short answer is it's the interaction patterns amongst any group of people. It's the interaction patterns. And if you want the, if you want, okay, well now give me the cliff notes on what the hell is that? It's the conversations we have. It's what we're talking about, i.e. the questions that guide what we're talking about and who's in the conversations, right? So you go back to these, the CEO summit, they're having a conversation and then I hand the mic out, Christopher, and I say, let's bring your voices into the room. The first gentleman stands up. He says, we're here because our consciousness is being tested, right? So this isn't me. This isn't some predetermined talking point. This is what's emerging, right? Then a woman stands up. She runs a, a huge investment firm. She says, I'm here because we, I want to contribute to shaping the world that I hope my grandchildren get to grow up in. So I'm just going to end the story here and just think about this for a moment. You could have me, the facilitator, or some other person in charge of this particular organization stand there and tell everybody why being here is important, which by the way, that's what all these CEOs and leaders and managers often think their job is to do, is to tell everybody why we are important. No, ask them, let them think about it, let them be inspired by each other's responses, and then let their voices discover together what our shared purpose is. That's one example of one type of question. And what can happen just by letting a room have a conversation. So that serves its own unique purpose. You know, there's different reasons that we're having groups have conversations where we're using different questions, different processes to be really careful about having space for ideas to, you know, emerge and blossom in healthy ways. I'll stop there because as you no, can it's tell. A, it's I awesome. So here's what's going on in my mind. Um, so... I think the biggest problem in America today is our inability to dialogue. Mm. 
that coupled with the fact that both the the media and politicians are in cahoots because they figured out that creating and monetizing hate is the is the greatest way to ratings to uh and to getting elected and so there's this horrible um uh, vicious circle of creating and monetizing hate and part of how you do that is you don't allow for any uh authentic conversation or dialogue yeah okay so with, with that said i've thought about why don't we have more conversation or dialogue and in the podcasting mm. world i thought why are there not more successful dialogue podcasts? There are some, mm. but most of them are fucking terrible. Mm. And that's why you got to edit them down to the good stuff because most authentic conversations are terrible. Mm. So I have a theory and the theory goes like this. It's not that we don't necessarily know how to do it, although I think that's part of it. Conversation can be taught. Listening can be taught. Question design can be taught. But I think there's maybe a meta issue here, which is, and I, I've learned this from podcasting. Some guests will send an email and say, can we know in advance the questions? Because mm -hmm. we want to prepare. Yeah. And sometimes the PR person will send me a bunch of questions they think I should ask. Mm. <laughs> it's like you don't know who you're talking to, do you? <laughs> and of course, I don't do any of that. Yeah. And so here's my aha, and you tell me. I think people are terrified to ask a question and then lose control after that. I, I have a sound effect for moments like this. There we go. that one more time for me just if you really want <laughs> do you have any other sound effects do you have like a baboom uh, or what else do you I got with it? there you go give me that one again <laughs> excellent here, here, here you go Ooh, i like that one too <laughs> okay so so why did that trigger the sound effects for you <laughs> well i i think we i think within your hypothesis is what I, what I would have said part of it, at least I think, um, I think there's a few things. So I, I do believe, and I can answer this in the context of meetings, trainings, conferences, there might be aspects of the podcasting space that I, I, I I'm not really aware of, uh, but in the context of all these types of meetings that we're a part of, I do think a part of this is we are still unconsciously designing how we spend time based on old-fashioned paradigms, based on the idea that we can actually control, predict, based on the idea that our job is to get as much done as fast as we can, which is often in conflict with slowing down, thinking, and being curious. And so I think there's these cultural forces, right, that affect how we show up as individuals. And then in turn, we reinforce these cultural norms. So I think it's hard to break the, the like cultures, like these jaws of gravity, right. To break against that to in a meeting, actually slow things down to stop and say, well, wait, what question are we answering? Or I'd like 30 seconds to actually think about that before I talk. And, you know, maybe others will follow Mike. This is called facilitating without the title. Right. But to do these things, I know there's enough people that would hear this and go, fuck, that sounds nice. But that's not what actually is going to happen because 
we're so conditioned to want to get more done faster. And um, I think that's part of the issue. That's part of the issue for sure. And so my observation of you, John, is when you and your team go to uh, design an experience, yeah. you do the opposite of what I think most people do. What I think most people do is they say, well, what's the kind of experience we want them to have? Okay, great. Well, that means we need to hire you know, uh, the black eyed peas and we need to get, you know, so-and-so big time, uh, super ding dong purpose per- person to keynote and this and that and the other. Whereas you design it around the question and then the question creates serendipity. And it's not that there aren't formal things that you plan to do post serendipity, but you build the serendipitous magic Mm-hmm. of an unpredictable conversation, not only into the event, but you really make it the source of it. Is that how you think of it? Uh, pretty close. Pretty how close. do you think of it? We, we might use slightly different language, but I think it's, it's a lot of the same image and aspiration. Yeah, I think we, we always start with, what's the purpose of this meeting? And the interesting thing is we'll often present that question to a conference or a training organization. We teach a lot of folks who are in the leadership development training space. And and we'll say, what's the purpose of people coming to your training? And what's interesting is they'll often say, well, we're here to learn. And I would put that in a certain category. And I'd put that in the category of, uh, okay, we're going to call that intellectual capital. It makes us sound a little smarter, right? Which is basically idea exchange, right? We're going to have some exploration of some important topic. Great. Now, before we ask, well, what are the other purposes of gathering? What's worth noting is that even the way we spend time in so many of these learning situations, we really ought to stop for a second and remind ourselves that the smarter and smarter we all get, and let's say we've all gotten smart, we, we don't want to sit in a room or in a meeting or in an online training and have the majority of the time somebody giving us information when we 20 years ago, we expect we can just consume that at our convenience, right? Like, remember when you used to watch television? Can you remember back when like Thursday night at 9 p.m. there was a show that you had to sit down, otherwise you missed it? Do you remember that? It was like 30 years yes, ago, right? We, Give me a show. Got, that got re- rechristened appointment viewing. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was a little boy, I, I don't remember what time it was on, but I really wanted to watch Steve Austin, the $6 million man. Okay. And so if that was on at eight o'clock on Thursday or whenever that was on, um, I, I, I needed to be near a TV to see my buddy, Steve Austin, save the world. So now we'll fast forward. I love that. So now we'll fast forward. Do you remember the approximate time in your life? It just doesn't, doesn't matter exactly, but when you no longer had to do that. Cause you could record it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I had an old buddy, his name was Mike Homer, God rest his soul. One of the greatest marketing guys in the history of Silicon Valley. He was the, he was the uh, CMO who took Netscape public. Anyway, mm. he was on the board of TiVo and he yeah. did, he did their category design yeah. and he got me a TiVo real early. Yeah. And uh, once I realized you didn't have to watch commercials and you could watch it whenever you want, I was like, this, this fucking changes everything. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you stopped sitting down Thursday at nine, right? Yet there are still so many gatherings of different types, Christopher, that are still designed with that paradigm. Like, oh, we're all here. Now we're just going to have a few people passively give everybody the info they need. 
it's that's a dramatic waste of intellect in our smartest employees, our most valuable customers, industry association, you know, community members, whatever you want to call them. They're the first people that want to stop leaving their families, their communities, getting on planes, logging into shit to do something like that. So that's just a sidebar on how we actually get information passed along. But the, the other source of value, when you asked, okay, how do you go about designing these things? So once in a while, someone will say, well, we want people to connect with each other. That's fair, right? It doesn't need a lot of convincing. We'll call that social capital, right? We want to meet other people that are like us, whatever, whatever that is, right? In our, from what we've seen, Christopher, those are two of the common reasons someone will show up to the types of conferences where you and I have spent a lot of time together, right? I either want to learn some stuff or maybe meet some people. Here's what's fascinating. There's a third source of value or capital that from what we've seen is rarely what people are naming is the reason we're putting this on. But from what we've seen, it's the number one reason people will want to come back. And it's what we call communal capital. And communal capital is the experience of belonging. It's the experience of belonging. Now, someone who was planning their next quarterly offsite might think, oh, fuck, well, that... That sounds nice. And I bet the guy's about to say there's science and research behind this, but we need to come up with a strategy. And how do I actually do that and still get our work done? Well, here's the fascinating thing. The fascinating thing is if you, if you ask, well, what creates belonging? What does that mean? And we don't have to unpack the whole thing. The bottom line is, do we convene in ways where people feel psychologically safe? And anybody who has any interest in a high-performing team or a group that can solve a difficult problem must have an interest in psychological safety. Safety doesn't mean we're nice to each other. In many cases, it actually means the opposite. It means that we feel safe enough so that we can actually speak up and take risks with each other, right? So number one is knowing how to facilitate so that people actually feel safe. We, you know, you got to go through our trainings to learn how to do that, all right? Or at least give every voice an opportunity to chime in, right? Of all the research, equal opportunities for voices is a leading precursor to safety. It's not the only thing. Right. But another contributor to belonging is have we convened in a way where there's been space for us to all get aligned around a shared sense of purpose? That whole story I gave earlier is an example of how you do that. Instead of me telling them, they tell each other what our shared purpose is. So, Christopher, you asked about designing these gatherings. And for us, the, the, the most surprising kind of unexpected finding is even if the main reason we're all here is to learn, if we look under the hood at how our brains work, it's not until we feel safe that we can get out of that reactive survival place into the part of our brains that we actually need to do the biggest, best thinking. So the way that we have conversations, the way that we connect, it actually brings online all the rest of us that we need to solve these difficult challenges, to learn whatever we need to learn. Dr. Berghoff, you're an extraordinary man. And... Uh, <laughs> As we wrap here, I just think, well, how come it's been 27 years since we did a podcast together? <laughs> Is that what we just did? Yeah. You're amazing. Uh, Thank you, John. And um, lots more to talk about. You've sparked a couple ideas that I want to circle back with you on. Um, let's do it. And I have a board meeting to go to. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a board meeting. No, it's not a wanker meeting. It's a fantastic meeting, one I'm stoked to be uh, a part of. Uh, John, thank Good. you so much. Uh, you mean the world to me. I deeply appreciate what you and the folks at Exchange do. And mm. um, let's have more of these conversations about conversations and questions. I uh, love you, brother. Love you back. 
Well, there he is, my buddy, the legendary John Berghoff. You can find him on the internet. His company is called Exchange. The website's exchangeapproach.com, and it's spelled X Change Approach, all one word, dot com. That's X Change Approach for Exchange Approach. Com. And John's a great follow on LinkedIn. It's just J-O-N-B-E-R-G-H-O-F-F on LinkedIn. And uh, now, as you know, word of mouth was, is, and always will be the most powerful form of marketing. And uh, we love your WOM and we uh, love your digital WOM. So if you love this podcast, please tell people you know about us. And uh, we love your sharing of this podcast on social media. All right. We would like to thank. We would like to thank you, of course. Thank you so much for investing part of your lives with us. Uh, all of us around here deeply appreciate it. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com and pick up your copy of Snow Leopard and learn how to create legendary content that ChatGPT cannot. It's a number one bestseller for a reason. Snow Leopard, how legendary writers create a category of one on Amazon. Also want to let you know my friends John Ruggi and Pablo Gonzalez have recently set up a new free category design community on Slack. So why don't you join us? Join a group of legendary category thinkers at categorythinkers.com. And there you'll be able to hang out for free with the smartest minds in category design. To join us, go to categorythinkers.com and join for free. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Your website is the first thing that people see when they go looking for you and you want to make a legendary first impression. Check out atre.net and pick up your legendary B2B website today. That's atre.net. Um, my friends at Interview Valet are the way you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. You know, when I uh, first started writing and podcasting, uh, I went on a podcast um, guesting tour. And the folks at Interview Valet set that tour up for me, and we've been friends and colleagues ever since. They do a great job. If you want to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts, interviewvalet.com. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Net- Network. Um, we, are, uh, we must tell you that all episodes do contain nuts. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, mystic, therapist, yoga instructor, and of course, category designer before acting on anything you heard today. We're produced and uh, edited by the greatest of all time. Check him out, Jason DeFilippo. His podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, is one of my top favorites. I was just uh, catching up on a couple of back episodes of Grumpy Old Geeks earlier this morning, and man, (laughs) their grump makes me laugh. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do uh, uh, the technical execution around here, and they build our website, lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Piros does our graphic and web design. <laughs> our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm, and we always use Dolby ADHD technology. If you uh, really want to reach out to us, you can send us email at blackhole at lockhead.com. Tom Waits was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Please teach thinking because thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking as well. If you live in the United States, please, for the love of God, get out of the left-hand lane. Some of us are going somewhere. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. <laughs> 
That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we get to hang out again, follow your different.